Well, if you have your copy of God's Word and would like to open to the book of Hebrews, we are going to be there this entire time. We're going to cover the whole book in the next three hours and 45 minutes. Um, by the way, while you're turning there, let me just say a word of thanks to Dave Henderson. He's the guy, the bearded guy, the other bearded guy on the drums. Uh, Brian and, and Karen are in Michigan this weekend visiting uh, Brian's parents. And so, Dave, I appreciate you. Uh, jumping on the set and playing with us. Dave and uh, Amanda and uh, Danielle and I, we've been friends for almost 20 years. Wow, that's been a long time, but a good time. So the book of Hebrews, let's think about it like this. You see, living here in the United States, we are in an environment where we have choices everywhere. We can choose where to shop, what to buy, Often from among a variety of options, we can choose where to live. And even in this age of COVID, we can choose to live anywhere we want and telecommute from there to wherever our job is. We can choose schools. We can choose colleges and more. We can even choose our own utility providers, which is weird because it's the same power line coming to our houses. We can sometimes take these choices for granted because other places in the world, they don't have all the options that we have. But those choices can be overwhelming. How do I choose? Do I go with the best price? Do I choose the best value? Do I go with the best quality? And often we have multiple choices in each of those categories. But when it comes to religion, we also seem to have a plethora of choices ranging from atheistic secularism to pantheistic options to New Age mysticism to the various monotheistic options. And even in Christian circles, you have the Reformed and the non-Reformed. You have the Charismatic, the Pentecostal, the Holiness, the Methodist, the Presbyterian, Baptist, Episcopalian, non-denominational, Bible, and on and on and on. And even in Baptist circles, there are so many flavors and varieties that we could not exhaust all of them talking throughout the day. But again, how do you choose? When it comes to church and when it comes to faith, it, it, it's, it's a bit like choosing something at a store. You have to go with what's available and ideally what lines up most closely with your convictions. But in many ways, choosing a religion or a faith is more complicated. Some might say that we can choose any and they're all equally good. Some people believe that all roads lead to God. But they fail to take into account the, the differences and even the contradictions that exist among all the religions. So truly all roads don't go to the same place. And as Christians, we would say that rather than choosing Christ... We are responding to Christ choosing us. And yet, as if the joy and honor of being chosen by God is not enough, we are constantly bombarded with the pressures that lead us away from our faith, lead us to look at other options, pull us aside. Rebecca McLaughlin is a, is a writer, a speaker. She recently wrote a book entitled 
the secular creed, which I highly recommend. It is, it is excellent. She walks through the major creeds, secular creeds that are happening right now and, and looks at them from a very careful biblical perspective. But she says this, she writes, for most Westerners today, the alternative to Christianity isn't another religion. For all the contemporary interest in meditation, yoga, and what is seen as ancient Eastern wisdom, few are looking for a full embrace of Buddhist or Hindu ethics. Radical Islam's association with violence and the oppression of women tend not to appeal. And while Jewish religious and cultural practices are deeply precious, even to the avowedly atheist Jews, few curious Gentiles find themselves in shoal. For a growing proportion of the people in the West, not identifying with any particular religion, but retaining beliefs about human equality has felt like a safe place to land. And after all, people reason religion has done more harm than good and things like universal human rights, racial justice, and care for the poor are self-evident truths. All that to say most Christians who wander from the faith are most likely not to wander to another faith, but to wander into the category of nuns, non-affiliated, And essentially, we're at risk of returning to our secular roots when we wander from the faith. But I want us to understand the threat that we face today is not unlike the threat that the first century Jewish background Christians were facing. As, the, as we see is, is most likely the reason why the book of Hebrews came about. You know, like most books of the Bible, we don't know whom the Holy Spirit inspired to write the book of Hebrews. The, the author doesn't reveal himself. We don't even really know who these people were, to whom he was writing. It wasn't, he doesn't reference a city like Paul does in many of his letters. He doesn't reference a region. He just talks to these people as though he knows them. But internal cues help us understand that this was likely Jewish background believers who had been believers for a long time. And yet in spite of their length of faith, they were immature in how they were walking with God. They were immature in their faith. And they had not matured sufficiently to withstand some of the ongoing persecution that they were experiencing. And so these Jewish background believers were being pressured into and, and, and pulled in a direction of observing the Old Testament law. They were being pulled back into the thing from which God had freed them, the thing from which God had saved them. And in response to those pressures, the writer of Hebrews lays out a treatise helping them understand why Jesus is better. Why Jesus is superior to all of the former, former ways. And as the author lays out his systematic arguments toward the supremacy of Jesus, he does so with several warnings, but also with the aim of encouraging these believers to remain faithful, even in the face of persecution. And I think that's an, a good encouragement for us. And so if you want to follow along in, in your outline, if you want to take notes, there, there are basically there are about four different ways that the writer of Hebrews tells them Jesus is better than this. And then in the, in the end, he's going to get to so do this. 
So the first thing we get to see is that Jesus is better than the prophets and the angels. We see this in the first two chapters of Hebrews. You see, right from the outset of the book, the author makes a firm argument for the supremacy of Christ. He doesn't introduce himself as many of the other writers of the epistles do, but he acknowledges this truth. He says simply, long ago, many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. And then he follows up uh, with this bold assertion in verses 2 to 4. He says, But in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He, meaning the Son, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. And after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of of the majesty on high and having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. And then after making this statement about the supremacy of the son of Jesus and his inherent qualities, the, the author uses a variety of Old Testament quotes as a means of supporting his premise. He's, he's laying out almost like an attorney, almost like a lawyer would lay out an argument, making his claim, and then he supports it with various texts. And one of the things I found interesting is that in the very first verse, he said, long ago and in many ways, God spoke through prophets. And then throughout the rest of those chapter, the, these first two chapters, he refers to angels. Well, then it begs the question, why would he talk about prophets and then in all of his arguments talk about angels? Well, essentially, Jewish tradition states that they believe that God spoke to angels who then gave the word to prophets, who then gave the word to the people. It was by the angels that the word of God came. And so you have this progression. You remember when you used to play telephone when you were a kid and, and, and you might say something and you whisper into someone's ear. And by the time it got to the end of the room, it was something completely different. That's not exactly what his argument is, but I want, I want you to see these layers of division. So you have God, you have the angels, you have the prophets and you have the people. But the underlying argument that the writer of Hebrews is, is stating is that since the son of God became human, he is and speaks the very word of God. And so you have God, son, speaking directly to the people. Now, just because the things that were spoken of old came through prophets and came through angels doesn't mean that the word was unreliable. In fact, one of the things he says, he, he, he says it was reliable. He tells them over and over again, it was reliable. But how much more is Jesus Christ, because Jesus is the word of God. He is better and and therefore we should obey what he says, which then brings about the first warning throughout the book. He's got he lays out this argument and then he gives them a big fat warning to, to watch out for in each of these sections. His first warning comes in the first four chapter four verses of chapter two, where he says, therefore, we must pay much closer attention To what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard. And while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit, 
distributed according to his will. So basically he's saying you, you try to obey the angels and the prophets, which proved reliable there were, but do even more to obey what Christ has said. You see, one of the things that makes Jesus better than the angels and the prophets is that he is God. He is God. He, in fact, in the first in chapter one, verse three, it says he is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. He's not a copy. He's not an ambassador. He's not an emissary. He's not a substitute. He is God. And beyond that, because Jesus took on human flesh and because he became like us in physical nature, therefore he takes on that human, that, that just like we are created in the image of God, he takes on that image as well, which gives him dominion over this world, just as God gave that to us. In Hebrews 2, 5 through 9, it says, For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been attested somewhere. What is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the angels and you have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. And at present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. So because, we, because the word we hear from Jesus is better than the words we heard from the prophets and angels, we should listen and obey him more. So that's the first argument that he's laying out. Jesus is better than the angels and the prophets. But in chapters 3 and 4, we find that Jesus is also better than Moses and the promised land. Jesus is better than Moses and the promised land. You see, for most Jews, Moses is an important figure. He was the one who led the people out of bondage in Egypt. He was the one who preached the laws of God to them. He was the one who organized their, their religious and cultic practices. He was the one who, who, who is like the pinnacle of what it means to be truly Jewish. And again, just as he acknowledged the significant contribution of the angels and prophets, the writer of Hebrews acknowledges that Moses was a man who was worthy of honor. And yet, he says, Jesus is worthy of more. Jesus is better. Look at chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. It says, Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. You see, Moses led the people of Israel in the wilderness up to the edge of the promised land. 
He took them right up there. But because of his own rebellion and because of his own disobedience and the disobedience of the generation that had gone before, he was not able to lead them into the promised land. He could only take them up to the edge. It had to be Joshua who, who followed on. It had to be Joshua who, who carried them in. And so Jesus, on the other hand, is, is, is leading us to the eternal promised land. And he is able to take us all the way there. We don't have to stop short. He is the one who's going to take it. Look at what it says in, in Hebrews 4, 2. It says, For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. He's talking about those who, who did not get to go into the promised land. But he continues later on in, cha- in chapter 4, verses 8 through 12. For if Joshua, the guy who followed after Moses, the guy who was able to take them into the promised land, for if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest had al- has also rested from his works as God did from his Therefore, let us strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. See, I think the point that the writer is getting is, is that Jesus, the living word of God, is able to fully bring us into the promised land, into that eternal rest into that eternal Sabbath. And because of that, we should persevere and obey, which leads us to the warning that he has in this section. There's actually a big warning in chapter 3, verses 7, all the way through chapter 4, verse 7. We're not going to read all that. But essentially, we could summarize it this way. It says, don't rebel against Jesus the way that the people of Israel rebelled in the wilderness. Encourage one another to avoid being deceived by sin. This is why we get to gather. This is why we get to be with one another and encourage one another to encourage each other not to rebel, but to obey the word of the Lord. So we see Jesus is better than the prophets and the angels. He's better than Moses and better than he's able to take us into the promised land. But also we see that Jesus is better than the priests and even Melchizedek. We see this in the last part of chapter 4 all the way through chapter 7. But in the Jewish religious system, you see priests all came from one tribe. They all came from the tribe of Levi. There were 12 Hebrew tribes. And and so the tribe of Levi was specifically appointed to be the priestly tribe. And they were appointed to serve and to offer sacrifices. The the Levitical priests would have to offer, offer up sacrifices for themselves because they were human as well. And just like all of us, the Bible says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. They were all fallen just like we are. So they had to offer a sacrifice to, to atone for their sin and then offer sacrifices for everybody else. But also, because of their temporary nature, because they were ultimately going to die, they could not render They could not do anything that was going to be permanent. Every year, every day, every season, new sacrifices had to be given. And in the book of Genesis, Abraham, this is way before the law was given. Abraham has an encounter with this dude named Melchizedek. Say that ten times. Melchizedek is this guy who was the priest and king 
of Salem. In fact, his his name means um, king of peace. He is unique because we don't know any of his genealogy. We don't know anything of his heritage. We don't know anything of that. But yet Moses, not Moses, Abraham has this encounter with him. He offers a, a, a gift, a tithe to him as an offering unto the Lord. So the writer of Hebrews talks about Jesus as being the perfect high priest, being sinless. He doesn't have to offer sacrifices for his own sin because he is without sin. Look at what it says in chapter 5, verses 9 through 10. It says, And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, and being designated by God as a priest after the order of Melchizedek. He is in the order of Melchizedek. He's not a descendant of Melchizedek, but he's in that type, in that style of Melchizedek because he's not confined to the Jewish tribal limitations. He's not of the tribe of Levi. In fact, he's of the tribe of Judah, which is where the kingly line came from. But because Jesus is perfect, he's able to be the priest that we need. He is also eternal, so his offering of a sacrifice is sufficient once and for all. Look at what it says in chapter 7, verses 21 to 24. But the one was made priest by an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds the priesthood permanently because he continues forever. So do you get what he's saying? These priests, they would be there for a while. They were fallen, so they had to offer sacrifices for themselves. They they had to do this over and over again. And ultimately, these guys were going to die. They couldn't enact something that was permanent. And so because Jesus is this priest outside of that priestly order outside of that he is better because what he did once he did for all eternity he paid the price he offered that sacrifice once and for all that the priest could not do and so as he did does in the other sections the writer in in uh starting in chapter 5 verse 11 through the end of chapter 6 gives yet another warning And he chides his readers or his hearers for being spiritually immature and simplistic. And even though they had been believers for quite a long time, they were, re- they were refusing to mature and grow. So he shares this admonition. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrines of Christ. This is in chapter 6, verses 1 to 2. And let us go on to maturity, not laying on a foundation, not laying again a foundation of repentance from works and of faith toward God and of instruction about washings and the laying on of hands and the resurrection from the dead and eternal life. You see, the intended audience of this letter, as we said before, they were moving back toward a works-based salvation. They were moving away from salvation by faith alone. And we've been covering that over the last few weeks in Kids Connection, helping the kids wrestle with that idea that our salvation is not based on what we can do, which is a great thing. Because if it was ultimately up to our faithfulness to obey the, the word of God, we would fall. Daily, we would fall short and never be able to be in a right relationship with God. And yet, by grace, through faith in Jesus Christ alone, 
we have a relationship with God. And then our works follow as a, as a response to that. Tim Mackey from the Bible Project summarized the warning that the writer here says to reject Jesus is to reject one's only chance at reconciliation with God. To reject Jesus is to reject one's only chance at reconciliation with God. So we've seen that Jesus is better in so many ways. He's he's better than the prophets and angels. He's better than Moses. He's better than the priests. But also, Jesus is better than the sacrifices and the covenant. Because Jesus is already a better priest. He is able to able to offer a better sacrifice. And one of the lines of argument that the writer presents here is that the earthly temple, the tabernacle, are a shadow of what is in heaven. They, they sort of get a, a mere glimpse of what is going on in heaven. And so because Jesus came from there, he doesn't have to deal with pictures. He doesn't have to deal with shadows. He's dealing with the real thing. Look at what it says in chapter 8, verses 1 to 2. He says, the point that we are now saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places and in the true tent that the Lord has set up. Not a tent made by man, not a tent put together by humans. And then rather than offering daily and even yearly sacrifices, Jesus offered his life once and for all. And then sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. He finished his work for all eternity. And in that initiated a new covenant. And that covenant is something that we will get to celebrate next week. As we celebrate the Lord's Supper. As we consider his life, death, burial and resurrection. As we consider his broken body and his spilled blood. As that perfect eternal Sacrifice for us. In chapter 9, verses 11 to 15, it says, But when Christ appeared as high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from the dead works to serve the living God. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant. So that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since the death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. And then he continues in chapter 10 verses 11 to 14. He says, and every priest stands daily at his service offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But... When Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, 
He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Do you guys get what Christ has done? I know we talk about it a lot, but I hope it sinks in and, and you really grasp this. You see, if we, were, if we were raised in that old covenant, if we were raised in that old system, we would have to daily come to the temple. It would look a little different than this, and we'd have to daily present some sort of offering of a lamb or a goat or a, a cow or a bull or something to atone for our sins daily, weekly, yearly, over and over and over again. And it would never be enough. And yet in one moment, once and for all, because Christ is that perfect sacrifice, He offered up His life on the cross, taking on Himself all of our sin, took it to the grave with Him, and then conquered the penalty of our sin by raising from the dead. So that if we would only by faith trust in what Christ has done, His finished work, we'll be in a right relationship with God. And so in response to this encouragement, this Word, the writer of Hebrews has yet another warning. And essentially he's saying that now that you know what Christ has done for you, don't reject him. Don't rely on your own righteousness or fulfillment of the law. Trust him and live by faith. So let me ask you, what are you basing your hope of salvation on? Are you basing it on how good you are? Are you hoping that there's a scale in heaven that when you get to the end that your good deeds are going to outweigh your bad deeds and that will be good enough? Are you hoping that it's your intellect? Are you hoping that it's your good things that you do for, for all humanity? Are you hoping it's, it's how you are as a parent? Oh man, that must be sacrifice. And are you hoping that it's the right buttons you push? That's how Steve's getting into heaven. He's con- Are you hoping that by showing up at church, whether online or in person, that it'll be enough? And I want to encourage you, if it's any of those things, it is not. Just as those sacrifices were never enough to eternally atone for the sins of people, it is in Christ alone. The good things we do, all those world-impacting things, all the, those career, the raising children, the button-pushing that we do, all of those things are good results of what Christ has done for us. And so I want to just encourage you, look to Jesus, the Lamb of God who eternally takes away the sin of the world. And if you're looking to anything else, trust in Him. Repent of your sins. Say, God, I am sorry that I've been blinded by my own ambition, by my own thinking, by my own worldview, assuming that, that I'm going to get into heaven by something else. So I'm asking you, will you turn and trust in Him as your Savior? It is in Him and Him alone. Several months ago, we had the joy of having Mark Butman uh, preach. Actually, he preached on a little bit of Hebrews. And he noted one thing. Uh, do you remember that what he said if you were here? He, he said there's one thing that is missing in the tabernacle. One thing that is missing in 
the temple. And he said, that's a seat. He said, there's no seat there because the priest's work is always happening. People's sins are always needing to be covered. But what does the writer of Hebrews say has happened? Actually, he references it several times in the book. He said, Christ did what he did, and then he sat down because his work was finished. I pray that you would trust in the finished work of what Christ has done for you. And if you don't understand fully what that means, talk to me afterwards or or let's get coffee this week. I think we can do that, right? Or if you don't like coffee, we'll get something else. But let me open up the word of God with you and help you understand what it means to be a Christian. What it means to have your sin paid for in Jesus Christ. So I referenced Tim Mackey earlier from the Bible Project, and he summarizes all that we've covered so far in in this way. He says, Jesus is God's word. He is the hope for a new creation. He is the eternal priest and the one and only perfect sacrifice. Which brings us to the final section of the book, the last three chapters, which basically says, because Jesus is better... We should follow the example of others and remain faithful. You see, as the writer of Hebrews wraps up his treatise, he's laid down all of these arguments. He's, He's presented Jesus as better than this, better than that, better than this, better than that. And then he presents in chapter 11 that great hall of faith. These people who lived by faith. And you can read that and see over and over by faith, by faith, by faith, by faith. Abraham did this. Sarah did this. Moses did this. All these people served by faith and lived and trusted that God was going to fulfill the promises that he made to them. And then in chapter 12, he's encouraging us to persevere in difficulty. We're to follow Jesus' example as well as he is the leader of a kingdom that will not be shaken. All of the kingdoms of this world will eventually crumble and fall. The United States will not last forever. England has not lasted in the way that it is over, even over the last century. We've seen how it's changed and molded. Every kingdom of the world will fall apart except the kingdom of God. And so because of that, the writer says, therefore, because we have all these people who've gone before us, these examples, he says, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And then he continues, therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. But then finally in chapter 13, he essentially tells them to live, tells us to live sacrificially in community. We said this before, but living a life as a Christian should be markedly different than what it was for us before we came to faith. It's not just our weekly schedule and what we do on Sunday morning, but it should be in in how we think, how we act, how we speak, how we treat others, how we view things. 
Hebrews 13, 1 to 5 says, Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them, and let those who are mistreated, and those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. Let the marriage bed be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled. Sorry, I read that wrong. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled. For God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. The writer of the book of Hebrews concludes with several more exhortations like that. It's this whole list of do this, live like this, act like that because Jesus is better. And so as we close, let's think briefly about the context. You see, this initial audience was a group of believers who had been believers for a long time. And yet in the face of persecution, they were turning back to their old way of thinking. And in response to their temptation to return to the legalism of the old covenant, the writer of Hebrews lays out this clear argument, elevating the supremacy of Christ. And he essentially says, he is better than the prophets and the angels. He is the word of God. He is better than Moses and the promised land. He is our hope of a new creation and an eternal rest. He is better than the priest. He is our eternal high priest. He is better than the sacrifices of the old covenant. He is the perfect sacrifice, fulfilling the old covenant and initiating a new covenant. You see, in our current environment, we also run the risk of persecution. It might not be that blood-bought persecution that some of our brothers and sisters in other places around the world encounter, but it may be that cultural shaming that we can get as the cancel culture says, no, if you don't believe like we believe, then you're out. We run the risk of falling into the world's way of thinking falling into the world's pattern. So in light of the message of Hebrews, I think Jesus I think the writer of Hebrews is telling us Jesus is better than the changing messages of today. He is the timeless and unchanging word of God. Jesus is better than any leader today or any false utopian hope. He is fashioning a new creation and provides a true hope in the kingdom of God. Jesus is better than the changing standards and the shame of cancel culture. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Jesus is better than the inconsistencies of today's way of life. He laid down his life so that we might die to ourselves and live for God's glorious kingdom in community. We've said this before, but let us consider this one more time. Hebrews 12, 1 to 2. Says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin that clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking fixing our eyes on Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him 
endured the cross, despising the shame. And there it is again. And is seated at the right hand of the throne of God, waiting for our consummation with him, waiting for us to be with him. Beloved, remain faithful. God will not abandon us. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your entire word, but God, I thank you for the book of Hebrews. Lord, for the way that you laid out these arguments, the way that you help us understand the supremacy of of Christ, the word of God. the embodiment of true faith, the perfect priest, the eternal sacrifice. Lord, help us to walk faithfully in the hope that we have because of what you've done through Jesus. Father, we pray that the supremacy of Christ would be seen in our lives. Lord, that you would draw others to you by your Holy Spirit, primarily by your word, but also by the witness of your people. Help us to honor you in the way that we live. We ask this in your holy name. Amen. Amen. Well, let me encourage you guys to continue implanting the word of God in your minds. And and as the band is coming up, the, the... the memory verse that we can be thinking about this week is from the uh, Hebrews 1, 3 to 4. It says, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature as, and He upholds the universe by the word of His power. And after making purifications for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high and having become as much superior to angels as the name He inherited is more excellent than theirs. Amen. Let's stand as we conclude our time of worship together.